Welcome back to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, everybody, unless this is your first episode, in which case, welcome! I hope you find some other topics I've covered that you also enjoy in this ever-expanding catalog. Today's guest is Jay Mamie, 10-time author, international keynote speaker, host of a nationally syndicated talk show, and the man who runs the super master class known as Thrive Sales Mastery, which has nearly 20 industry giants coming together to teach a single course on the topic of just sales. Let's get those rookie numbers up. Welcome to the show, Jay Mamie. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Well, I'm from uh, originally from New York. Uh, currently, at the at the time, I live now in North Dallas. Uh, I'm an author. I'm a ten time speaker, a ten time author, keynote speaker. Uh, I'm also the purveyor of the sales course called the Thrive Sales Mastery. Uh, I have been on Broadway. I have done a film. Uh, I've done bodybuilding competitions, and uh, I am known as the world's number one action tainer. Now, when there's no one else doing it, it's okay to call yourself number one, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm loving life, man, and trying to get to the next level just like everybody else. Wow, that's awesome. What drove you to kind of get into this? Well, I mean, when you say this, which part of this? <laughs> yes, of course, you have a very diverse background, I should say. So. Uh, when you you know started writing and you started talking about sales, like what drove that to be your your thing? Mm -hmm. Well, I've always been in sales. I, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 13 years old. I grew up in Spanish Harlem, uh, which is uh, Spanish is uh, called a barrio, uh, and it's not the uh, vacation capital of the world, that's for sure. So you grow up there because you're poor and you don't have much. And that was our case. So by the time I was 13 years old, if I wanted to buy the latest pair of sneakers or the, the coolest jeans that all the other kids were wearing, I couldn't ask my parents uh, to do that because they were already struggling financially. So I had to figure out a way to, to make money for myself. And that started this entrepreneurial journey. So throughout those years, I've done, I've done everything from uh, tax work. When I was 16 years old, I was doing tax returns. I was doing personal, I had my own personal training business by the time I was 21 and a number of different businesses that I've done successfully. So after a while, I thought to myself, Hey, I've learned a lot in the, in the trenches about selling. When I went to college, I actually picked up degrees in psychology and behavioral science, uh, consumer behavioral sciences. So all of that rich experience really is what uh, compelled me to say, okay, how can I pour that back into those that didn't have the upbringing I have, didn't have the academic training I have, don't have the experience I have, don't want to go through those years of, of hard knocks learning in order to be successful in sales uh, and in a way that really gives them an edge. And that's really where now we have developed these courses and these books. And I speak a lot about that. It's, it's really from a, uh, a in-the-trenches experience, it's not writing books or speaking about topics that I've never done. Yeah. And I was just talking to someone earlier this week where they said, you know, I was writing my second book. I just got my second book out and you've, you know, 5X that person, <laughs> um, which is very impressive. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, writing, I, I write books from, from experience, uh, Colton. I, all of my books are reality-based books that whether they teach a lesson uh, about mindset or they teach a lesson about mental health or they teach lessons about selling, um, it's easy for me to write them because I'm really just putting on paper my life. That's definitely a good way to write them because you always mm -hmm. have the information to lean back on. It's not like, you're, oh, I got, I got writer's block. What do I make up next? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, where do we start if we're, we're trying to figure out how to get sales? What's the most critical first thing we got to start with? I, I think the most important thing that I tell people often, whether it's, it's sales, because it is part of a job, a regular uh, nine to five or, or you know, standard employment that just requires you to have uh, the ability to sell a product. 
or whether it's your own business or whether it's something entrepreneurial that you are diving into, I always tell people, make sure that this is something that you're cut out for. In other words, don't try to squeeze a round ball into a square hole. We're all selling something every day, right? If you're married, you're certainly selling every day. If you're a parent, you're selling every day. So you're always selling something, but there's a difference between selling something that is a natural part of communication with, with communicating with someone and selling because it's a way that you make a living. It's a whole other experience when it's the latter and not everybody's cut out to do that. So my first question to someone is examine yourself to make sure that you are cut out for a life that deals with ultimately convincing another person that whatever you're proposing is good for them, enough for them to say yes, and that's how you earn a living. When you kind of boil it down to that, to that real uh, root reason, um, well, rather the, the root core of what selling is, if you're not okay with that, then I tell them you might not last, or the truth is it's probably better if you find something else to do because uh, you'll hit a lot of um, a lot of brick walls along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, if it's just not going to be your strong suit, like that's a hard thing to do every day, day in and day out, regardless of if you're doing it for yourself or you're doing it for somebody else. Absolutely true. It's Think about this. And I, I know the difference because I was an employee at one time, and then I've been an entrepreneur and in sales, uh, self-employed for much, much longer than I was ever an employee. But I do know the difference. And, and the difference is when you are in sales, you have to pull money out of thin air. Every day, you have to be a magician and you have to pull money out of thin air. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you're better off finding uh, a way to earn a living where someone is handing you that paycheck, that, that income, so you don't have to worry daily about pulling it out of thin air. That's so critical for people to grasp. Yeah. And what else do you say are critical if people, you know, want to be good at sales and they are cut out for it? Um, you know, what are good fundamentals they have to build? I think one of those fundamentals has to be a, a, an ongoing desire to get better. If there's one thing that my experiences have taught me, and I've worked with thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over my career whether my own organizations, people I've trained for my companies or coaching for others. You have to remain humble in your learning and your openness to learn. I think the minute that you think you know it all and become arrogant uh, to that extent where you're not willing to learn, even if you think you know something already, you could always learn something from somebody and all it takes is one thing, just one little thing to learn that causes a switch in the way you think that takes you to the next level. If you're not open to that, then you're going to find yourself either struggling along the way or never reaching the, that great next level of potential because the skill set that you've learned so far will only take you so far. And I often caution people, don't be arrogant, salespeople. Be humble, learn, constantly learn, keep yourself available to the opportunities where something new can present itself. And because you're open-minded, you receive it instead of reject it, because that little bit of information can make the difference between adding another zero to your income or staying where it's at. Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference too, especially if you, you know, you show up and you're, trying to be the biggest guy, the best guy in the room. Like I, I imagine that's not the guy I want to buy from. Right. So it seems like a big mindset piece. It is. It, it really isn't. I think that's one of the flaws that I find a lot of what I call novice salespeople or mid-season salespeople. They never get to the next level because they're just, they think they know it all. And the minute you get to that place where you think you know it all, and you're delusional because you think you do, but you really don't. It's uh, it's a death trap. Yeah, it's a good point, and it's a, a big part of the show. Is like, hey, do you think you know, you know, sales? 
because a lot of people right. think like, oh, I know some statistics on, you know, whatever sales number, like, okay, well, what if I bring in a sales expert? Like, are you going to know everything they're about to drop on you? Because I'd be willing to bet you don't. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's why I bring in people like yourself who are very well recognized in your field. And I'm like, okay, uh, let's, let's get through this, see what people do know. And then like, just start, start hitting me with some knowledge that they uh, absolutely don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and where yeah. do you find like people pick up their first piece and they're like, oh, I didn't know anything about this. Now, when you say they pick up their first piece, I mean, a first piece of business or is that we referring to uh, just anything where they like, you know, they walk into it and they don't necessarily have that humble attitude and they're, you know, either completely caught off guard or they find they have to learn something, you know, they didn't never expected. Yeah. You know, the, the tragedy in that, that's a good question, Colton. The tragedy in that is the lesson that you learn, that particular lesson that you're saying when, when you find out eventually, hey, I, I, uh, I missed something or there was a transaction that I could have gained. Usually that becomes the most expensive learning lesson because it is the transaction or the sale um, that could have turned your life around, uh, could have made you a bunch of money, could have introduced you to another person. In other words, it cost you more than you were willing to pay. And that's what I always talk to people about. If you're not going to pay for the knowledge, the wisdom, or invest the time better, then along the way, it's going to cost you 10 times more because you didn't. So better to pay a small price now of of the investment of time and knowledge and resources so that down the road, when you run into a situation where you know that you just screwed it up or you just weren't good enough to get that big sale and it cost you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or a major connection that you could have made that could have opened up additional doors, you don't find yourself regretting that you didn't take the time uh, or spend a little bit of money to get better so that when that opportunity presented itself, you would have handled it appropriately. It's like a champion. It's, It's just not worth missing out on something like that for the small investment of time and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So in that sense, do you see it as better when you're trying to get into sales? And I would say probably, especially for yourself, that you just try and take everything, you know, really slow and not try and, you know, hit the highest numbers, the fastest marks, whatever it is. I think you go at your own pace. You're absolutely right. But, you know, in one of my books, I talked about um, the flukes to recognize the flukes. And it's so easy. And in any business, whether it's business, academics, and sports, what have you, where you get involved in it and you look at others and you admire what they've done, you appreciate what they've done, but you try to compete with what they've done and you're not ready yet. They're just not there. So that's what I call recognizing the flukes. Uh, the, there are some people that have immediate success in sales, academics, sports, And that's wonderful for them, but that's not everybody. And when I call it a fluke, I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean that in life, it's a fluke when you meet someone that everything goes well for them. And specifically in sales, where you find somebody that all of a sudden they get involved in in whatever career they're in, whatever sales position, whatever business, and they are killing it immediately. And then you look at that person and you compare their success with yours and you say, man, I suck. Well, it's an unfair comparison because it's not supposed to happen as quickly as it may have happened for somebody else. In sales, because we're, I mean, this is applicable and universal to anything, this particular point, right? But in specifically in sales, you're supposed to struggle. You're supposed to miss sales. You're supposed to get frustrated and aggravated. That's healthy because it forces you to get better. You're supposed to not make a million dollars your first year or a hundred thousand your first year. You're supposed to starve for a little while. You're supposed to do that because that's the process. Anything short of that, overnight immediate success, it's a fluke. Now it's okay for that person, but the danger in comparing yourself by getting 
uh, getting to a place where you want to start so fast with so much because you're chasing somebody else's success, that's a formula for disaster and discouragement and depression. Yeah. And that's very dangerous. And it's interesting that you say that because it's one of those that's like, if you do get, you know, the fluke where they got really lucky, um, you're right in that they never like had to fight to earn that. And so, you know, they didn't necessarily put the work in. So while they had one great year, like there's no prediction that says their next year is going to be good at all. That's exactly right. I, I find that in real estate a lot. And uh, you have real estate agents that are brand new to real estate, just as an example. And they, they have immediate success. They make all the right, right connections or they bring all the right connections. They've got all the right people in their circles. And their first year in real estate is spectacular. But then you have the guy who is starting off at the same time, doesn't have the connections, doesn't have the people didn't come with some extraordinary client base or what have you. And he's not going to make the kind of money that that other realtor made, but yet he wants to try to compete with that person's success. It's a, it's a mistake. You go at your own pace and you continue to learn and develop in a way that you feel is going to keep you in the game. And that gets you so discouraged and disheartened that you get depressed and you leave, which is why most people in sales leave. Well, yeah, and it's very, you know, I don't have a good number grasp here to come from because I am not the sales guy. But like if you have a, a small personal business and you make 10,000 in sales, like you shouldn't be looking at the guy, you know, doing 100 million in sales because he's this gigantic company. It's going to take you a while to get there. And you got to respect that you made 10,000 and that's $10,000 you didn't have that came out that's of, right. like you said, came out of thin air. That's exactly right. Yeah, appreciate the success that you're having and build upon it. And next year or the next one will be even better. Yeah. Do you see different fields of sales as far as different products as being easier or more difficult than others? Absolutely. There, there's two types of sales a person's going to make, either a tangible sale or an intangible sale. Uh, a physical sale or a conceptual sale. The intangible conceptual sale is way harder. Not that it's hard. It's harder compared to the tangible sale. So what do I mean by that? If you're in real estate, let's say cars. If, if you're going to buy a car, you're going to visit the dealership. And if I'm the car sales guy, at the end of the day, I don't have a whole lot to do because the car, if it looks good, uh, you're going to be attracted to it. It's a physical thing. You could see it. It's right there. I can sit in it. I can smell the leather. I can take it for a test drive. I can test to see how the engine sounds and the sound system. I just have to hang out there and let the car sell itself. It's a physical sale. Plus, you're taking it home. Right? You're driving it away. It's immediate pleasure. Same thing with a home. Same thing with an outfit. Same thing with anything that you have immediate access to. That's a tangible sale. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can see it the next day. In the house, you're living in the house the next day. A in, uh, an intangible sale, a conceptual sale, you can't touch, you can't feel. You, you have to understand it and then realize it's long term. I, I may never see the benefit of this for a while, if ever. I'm not going to touch it. I can't smell it. I'm not taking it home. So I have to internalize the value of it in my mind. So like, for example, when I talk to financial guys and they are selling life insurance or they're selling a retirement plan to somebody who's 35, 40 years old, I tell them, you have to sell a conceptual concept that one day down the road to this client, you're going to decide you're going to retire 30 years from now, 35, 20, 20. That's way down the road. And so that person says, okay, and they begin to put away money today. They can't touch retirement. They can't smell it. You can't take retirement home. There's nothing tangible. And it's so far off in the future that most people can't grasp something that is that far out. 
it's a harder sale because it's conceptual. Same thing with fitness. Same thing with vitamins. Anything like that. You know, it's a conceptual sale. Yeah, it's kind of a, a promise of tomorrow with tomorrow being an indistinguished point in the future. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that does definitely, when you describe it like that, does seem difficult. You know, if you just don't understand the concept of life insurance or, you know, you just don't care about what you're leaving behind, like that's a hard pitch, you know, because I can see like retirement accounts, like I have a retirement account. I looked at it and I said, Hey, I want to retire early. How much do I need to put in to retire early? And they said, it's going to be a lot more than you think you're comfortable with. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that's a conceptual sale because if you have an, an idea that I want to retire early, just to use your example, and you know that it's going to cost me another $500 a month, but the $500 a month could buy something that you can touch and feel now you're going to have that struggle. Wow, I can put 500 for something that's way down the future, or I can put 500 for something that could be a brand new car. It could be whatever, right? Pay off some debt. You, that you experience now. So you have to understand how to sell conceptually. And that's where I speak a lot about psychology. My background is psychology. So I often teach about the usage of psychology. And the way we're wired in our brain to process information and how to use that to, to position your, your proposition where it's received better. Sometimes salespeople are saying the wrong thing. They think they're saying the right things, but they're saying the wrong things in terms of the words. And it's actually repelling a sale, not attracting it. Yeah. And let's get into that because it's very interesting to hear like the psychology behind a sale. Is there like a universal thing that brings people in or turns people away? Yeah. I, I, there, there, and there's a long answer, but then I'll sort of give you the, the trailer version. The good news about the psychology or the way that we're, um, the way we process a decision is that at the end of the day, uh, Colton, we're all the same. We all have the same wiring, the same package that's inside my skull that's inside your skull. Now, that's different from the programming, right? So the wiring is the same, but the programming could be vastly different. So, but understanding that the wiring is the same, it allows you to use words and, and nonverbal words to communicate a message that really seeps into the other person's subconscious mind, which is where all decisions are made. People think decisions are made off the cuff. They novices, I mean, um, or even everybody really, they think that a person makes a decision off the cuff. 95% of a person's decision, I mean, a major decision, I don't mean like, what am I going to have for lunch today? You know, a, a, a major decision that's going to cost them something. That comes at the subconscious level. 95% of all our major decisions are derived from the subconscious mind. Only 5% comes from the conscious mind, from the cognitive mind, the mind that is quick to say yes or no when we want to have a sandwich or soup for lunch. But for deeper decisions, the subconscious has to be involved in making that decision. And, and a seasoned person, salesperson who understands the usage of psychology will pierce through the conscious mind speak to the subconscious mind because that's the decision maker. And the only thing the subconscious mind makes decision on is based on past experiences and emotions. If you understand that, and that's where it can get really funky with a long answer. Um, but if you understand that and learn how to manipulate those emotions and that imagery and seep into that storehouse of subconscious experience and history, you could sell like a pro all day long, all day long. Yeah. And it sounds like something that you have to adjust for each thing that you're trying to sell. You have to try and get a, a different piece of their subconscious attention, so to speak, where they're like going to be way different to sell them 
you know, a t-shirt versus trying to sell them on life insurance, so to speak. Oh, there's no question about that. Right. Uh, I mean, to the extent of what the purchase is or to the extent of what you're trying to get them to buy into. And when I say buy into sales, isn't necessarily a product or service sales could be um, joining your group or sales could be you trying to get them to come to your church or trying to get them to donate or, or vote a certain way. That's all a sale. Right. But at the end of the day, doesn't matter whether it's a t-shirt or a house or any of this other stuff. There's really there's five main triggers that if you know how to utilize them, you can, and I won't say manipulate, but you can persuade someone to make a decision because now you're ticking, you're, you're triggering that emotional subconscious decision-making uh, trigger. And, and one of them is, is safety. See, at the end of the day, everybody on planet Earth, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where they are, we're wired to keep ourselves safe. And our subconscious mind, early on in our early development, we have something called the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain, back in our early developmental process as a species, it was only concerned with a couple of things. Survival, rep reproductions, um, can I have sex with this? And then can I eat this? So how do I keep myself safe? How do I have sex with something? And how do I... How do I eat? What do I eat? Okay. That has never gone away. Right? So when a, when, when a person's buying a car, a sales course, a house, anything major, even if they're thinking about marrying somebody, that's, that's a sale, right? If I ask somebody to marry me, I got to sell them why she has to marry me, why she should marry me. At the end of the day, the other person's going to make a decision based on how safe they feel if they say yes to you. Yeah. It sounds like you're, you're not necessarily like selling whatever the good is you're selling like their decision, right? Like I'm trying to get you to make a decision, whether it's with your money or with your time, like to commit to something. And that I can definitely see that playing when you're talking about like, you know, are you going to be safe? Is this going to be something that keeps you safer longer? Right. As long as there's no harm, I think about this and any of you listeners, oftentimes a decision that you make that you feel is going to cause you harm or your family harm. If there's any indication of that, you're not going to say yes. It doesn't matter how good it is. You're not going to say yes. And an example that I give to people oftentimes to really highlight this is if you have a I'm using very simple examples here. Uh, but you could apply it to anything. Um, if you have a realtor that is showing a potential buyer a beautiful, gorgeous mansion, has all the amenities, is gorgeous, and that buyer goes with the realtor to look at the house and they walk in the front door and the house is spectacular. Everything the person, the buyer would want for them and their kids, beautiful, the pool. But that buyer happens to walk towards the back, goes up the stairs to the second floor and looks out the window. Now that they have a, they have an elevated view and they see that up the block is a grocery store with some questionable people hanging out in front of the grocery store. And I say grocery store because I'm from New York, so we see them all the time. They're called bodegas, right? So you see a grocery store with some unsavory characters and then you look to the left and you see uh, another abandoned building. That buyer, doesn't matter how beautiful that house is, more than likely is not going to buy the house. Why? They don't feel safe. They come to another house, maybe not as glorious, maybe not as wonderful, smaller, nice, nice enough. Same amount of money as the big mansion. But the neighborhood is safe. They're going to buy that house because not the house, the feeling of feeling I'm safe. You not enough salespeople understand that, so they shoot themselves in the foot always. It seems like something you know. I can show you the nicest house on the planet, but if the day we go to walk into it, you know, there's some dude that's broken into the kitchen, 
Like I couldn't drop the price low enough for you to take that house. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Safe. Huge play. Huge play. Look, let's just, if we, if we examine today, whether you believe in vaccines or not, it's irrelevant. The push to take vaccines and all this other stuff, the, the sales pitch, if you want to call it a sales pitch, although I, I'm just using it in a way to make a point here, sure. was early on, hey, if you don't take this vaccine, if you don't wear the mask, you know, you're going to die or you're going to get sick. And again, that's neither here nor there. Why did people go and get the mask and do the vaccines? I want to be safe. I want to be safe. Don't you want to be safe? I want to be safe. That's the number one trigger that if a salesperson understands it and they utilize it and they apply it to her, to whatever they're doing, they can have so much more success. Yeah. It seems like kind of taking your sales advantage and maxing it out. If the answer is like, if you don't do it, you're going to die. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's the ultimate, right? If you don't do it, you're going to die. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, it's, if it's used properly in any extent, it works. You yeah. just have to know how to use it. Yeah, I can see that. So what's the next thing after safety? The other thing is people want to feel certain, certain and secure and predictable. So in other words, you could feel safe about a decision that this is not going to harm me. This is actually going to be pretty good for me. But if there is a sense that there, that product or that service may not be there in the long haul, and they're uncertain, they're unsure, they're unsure about you, they're unsure about the product in, in terms of the longevity, the, the service. We don't make decisions about things when we're not certain, sure, or feeling that it's a predictable outcome. Let me give an example. In other words, we're risk takers to an extent. So an example I give is, why is it that most people will watch the same show the same movie over and over again when there's a number of other movies they could watch, whether it's they watch it on TV or, or on, uh, on live stream. People will tend to watch the same movie. Why? Because that movie, if they have a choice to watch a movie, one they know, one they don't know, they're going to go to the one they know. More often, people go to the one they know. Why? Predictability. They know the lines that they're going to laugh at. They know how it ends. They're certain they're going to have a good movie experience. This other one they don't know, eh, they could take a chance on it, but they may not like it. They don't really know if it's going to be funny. So they're going to pick one or the other. They're going to go, they're going to pick the one that gives them the most sense of certainty. That happens in restaurants. People, if you have a restaurant you don't know or a restaurant you do know, and mom and dad only have date night once a month. They're going to pick the restaurant that they know. Certainty. Huge selling component. Huge selling component. Helping another people, helping the other person feel that the decision they're making is going to be good for them in the short run, in the long run, for all the reasons that that particular product or service can deliver. Huge. Yeah, and it's really you know, easy to comprehend when you boil it down to like a movie or dinner. Is it's like, you know, I've been disappointed by a bad movie before and you look at the unknown and you have to do some mental gymnastics to be like, what's the chances this movie disappoints me, mm -hmm. you know? And that's yeah. true because I have seen the same movie more than, you know, a couple <laughs> times and I'm like, boy, is it just because I've seen a lot of bad movies in the past? Now I don't want to take a chance. <laughs> it's funny because I always go for the new ones. I, I figure... I, I hate watching movies that I've seen again. I mean, I watch little clips here and there, the action scenes, but to sit through a whole entire movie, I don't want to do that. But for a restaurant, if I can't figure out one to go to, I'll go to one that I know because it's predictable. Sure. And it definitely, I guess you'd have to gauge that on, you know, how much of a, a commitment is this? Because it's Correct. like, for me, if it's a movie I've seen before, like it better be a really good movie. 
Mm-hmm. I've never, you know, like I'm going to purchase this outside of whatever streaming service I'm on. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, there's just no way you're going to get me into it because I'm like, that eh, wasn't that good the first time around. And the same thing with your, you know, your restaurant where I'm like, well, I didn't really enjoy it the first time around. So I don't think a new dish is going to sway me on it. Right. Yeah. One of the things I'm glad you brought, you brought that up. Okay, speaking about restaurants, but again, this applies to anything. So the question is, how do you get someone to feel pretty certain, secure, and confident that what you're going to provide is going to be there? It's going to be is predictable. It's, there's going to be no surprises. There's certainty when they don't know you. Great question, right? You. If you're in sales and you just met someone, they don't know you personally from a hole in the wall. How can you get them to gauge or at least give you the benefit of the doubt that they can feel, they can be pretty certain that you're a good guy and you're going to do a good job and you're going to have a good product. You'll be there in the future. Well, the only ability you cannot develop for yourself is credibility. That comes from other sources. So I am huge on telling People, if you're ever, whether it's a sale, uh, a product or service or a restaurant or whatever it is, who else is talking good about you that your new potential customer or client needs to hear or read about? Because if you, and that's why testimonials are so important. If I see Colton, uh, I don't know Colton, right? I don't know if you're the podcast, the podcast or not, but if I go to the website, and I see that 15, 20 people, hey, it said, hey, Colton is a great guy. Colton's, he's a great podcaster. This is a great podcast. And 15, 20 people say good things about you, me, if 15, 20 people say something good, I'm pretty certain that I'm going to have a good experience. I'm more likely to say yes. And you never have to say a word. 15 other people did. I feel certain. Testimonials is huge getting people to feel certain about you. Yeah. And let's look at the other side of that because that's what jumped into my head immediately is during the pandemic and everything else, we've had a lot of supply problems. You know, how do you kind of earn people, earn their trust back that you can deliver, you know, when there's certain things that have just been out of your hands? Well, I think at the end of the day, if there's things that you cannot control, and speaking of supply and demand, people will give you a little bit more of a leeway. They'll they'll cut you some slack if, truthfully, there's things that are out of your control. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you use that as a salesperson. If you don't use it as a crutch or you, you don't sort of lean on that too much uh, as an excuse to provide poor service. But... People generally understand that if there's circumstances outside of your control, they'll cut you some slack. Okay. I was just wondering, cause I'm like, you know, how many people I know I have, but how many people have been disappointed by a service, not because the product was bad, but just because it took an extra two weeks or something to get whatever it was you were buying. And I was like, I've definitely been there where I had to like reach out and be like, Hey, what's going on? And they're like, look, we have nightmarish turnaround times for just raw materials mm-hmm. and you know we're trying our best promise we're just trying to get there well and that that comes to in, in one of my modules in my course i talk about yeah, under promising and over an over delivery so if and this just kind of goes to this point if supply and demand is an issue today then as a professional salesperson that you that you're trying to be you should never overpromise that they're going to have whatever it is they're looking for within a reasonable amount of time. Don't overpromise. It's always better to, you know, to under underpromise and overdeliver. Because if that supply chain becomes an issue, you didn't promise them they were, they were going to get it right away. And if by chance they do have that particular product or service sooner than you thought they would, you look like a hero. Yeah, it's definitely one of those like if you know you can get them five of something by Sunday, like, you know, tell them you can do four or you can do it by Monday and, mm-hmm. you know, you've over-delivered, then that's like, it's an easy concept. And it's, I think one of those, you just have to kind of uh, 
conceptualize out into whatever you're doing mm-hmm. to make it mm-hmm. work for you. Yeah. Yeah. So what about breaking into a market? Like if you're the new person on the scene with, you know, not necessarily like a revolutionary product, but just another product, like how do you kind of steal some of that market share? Well, I, I tell you, I, I steal that market share, you know, uh, I could tell you what is going to gain the market share, your personality. And there's a, there's a lot to be said about being likable. So let's say you're in a very competitive industry and you're right, you're trying to gain market share because it is an industry that is already oversaturated. Tons of people that look like you are in that space. How do you gain share? Well, first of all, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to make sure that you're likable. People do business with people they like and, and that make them feel good. Uh, make, they make them feel special and they, they validate them. As human beings, we gravitate towards people that recognize us, validate us, make us feel special, like us. Automatically, we're going to gravitate towards that person. That's just the human wiring. So you have to make sure that you're that kind. If you're a jerk, good luck with that, right? But if you're likable, you already have a leg up. And the second thing that I I always tell people is, how are you going to make yourself memorable? If you look like everybody else and you talk like everybody else and you act like everybody else, then they're going to be treated like everybody else. So what sets you apart? I do a talk called How to Become 10 Secrets to Becoming Memorable to stand out in the crowd. It's a very funny talk. Um, but in that talk, I share how do you separate yourself from the crowd so that you can gain uh, market share. People can go to you uh, as opposed to the 50 other people that sell the same product. What do you do and how do you achieve that? How do you live a leave a mental footprint in a consumer's mind? What do you do? Because that's the only way. Those are the, There's other ways. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to know your stuff too. But none of that matters if they don't like you and if you don't stand out. Those are the first two things that I would tell somebody immediately they've got to work on. Yeah, it's kind of like if you hit the average marks on everything, like, yeah, you are proficient at it, but you're not necessarily gaining any traction. You know, like you look just like everybody else and the, the sales you get might be as much luck as anything else. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the podcast world, right? How many last I heard it was 2.1 million podcasts. That was a statistic. I think I heard, but what separates one podcast from the other? The host, super likable, very unique, unique show, unique guests, very different from everybody else. That is what happens when you want to separate yourself from a private space, even in the podcast world. But if you look like everybody else, you sound like everybody else, and there's nothing really unique about what you're doing, you're going to get lumped into the crowd and the market share you're looking for, it'll be tough to peel away. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of those, like, when I got into this, I waited for like two years waiting for somebody to do the show that I was like, why isn't someone bringing on a different type of guest every, every time around? And I just Mm -hmm. didn't run into it. And finally I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. We'll just, we'll buy a mic. We'll make this happen. But it, it really is kind of a, uh, you know, are you a face in the crowd or are you like somebody doing something unique? Mm -hmm. That's what it boils down to. And then, you know, on the same measure, like a, a podcast, you still have to deliver on it. That's one of the things, which is a very helpful community that I have appreciated immensely. Um, they said, look, if you set a deadline and you say all of my episodes come out on Monday, like your episodes better come out on Monday because if you mm-hmm. miss, if you miss even one and it comes out on a Tuesday, like you've lost people, right? It's just That's like right. a, a guarantee. So they're like, you better be ahead of the curve. That's exactly right. Totally agree. Yeah. So you know, what else can you do to kind of kind of set yourself apart? Like what's something I could do today that uh, might gain me a little traction in making myself more unique? Well, I, I think what if, if you're in sales, find resources, come up with resources that are different from 
the others that are in your same space. I'll give you two. I'll give you three. Most people in sales or any kind of business have never written a book. You write a book. Now, it, I always caution people. I, I didn't say a dissertation. I didn't say a, a, a thesis piece. I didn't say a documentary because nobody cares to read that. A book, 50, 60 pages that highlights to the your potential client, the, the, the market out there, that you know enough about your content and you're confident enough about your content that you put it in the book. Because most people won't do that. Not because they don't have the time, but because they don't think they have the value to put on paper for the world to read. So they don't do it. Okay. So number one, I tell people, go write a book, 50, 60 page book. There's no shortage of ways to write a book today. The minute you have a book that has your cover on it, and if it's a real cool cover with your name on it, you have just separated yourself from the pack because they don't write books. That's the first thing. Second thing is do what you're doing, Colton. Go create a podcast. Have a way for people to hear the way you think. A book allows people to read how you think. The podcast allows, allows them to hear how you think. That separates you from the rest of them right there. And the third thing I would say, get some video content out. You could do a YouTube, you could do Instagram, you could do just fine Facebook stories, do videos. Because now people get a chance to see how you think and see how you are. If people see how you are, hear how you are, read how you are, and they get familiar with your style and personality, that is going to give you a tremendous advantage and leverage over the same salespeople that are offering the same stuff. Yeah, it certainly would. And I mean, you could go the extra step in a different direction. And if you write a book, like do your own audiobook. you know, like I bought, I bought recording equipment that is considered like on par with what most people use. And it's not very expensive. Mm -hmm. so it's like, you don't have to put a gigantic investment down to put your voice on the internet forever. And if you're covering your own product, like you're putting some extra value behind whatever it is you're selling. Absolutely. I told my, uh, my sister-in-law, she's a very good realtor in, in New York, um, but she wants to take it to the next level. And she started to do not a podcast so much, but videos, something very simple. Right? And she has gotten so much positive traction from that because she's very bubbly. She's very funny, but you don't see that on a business card. You don't see that on a website, which is conceived on the video. And uh, she's very likable, but you wouldn't tell and you couldn't tell from a website or a business card. So it does work. It sounds like you definitely have to lean into, you know, everything social media gives you where you're like, it, you know, you have this platform, people are using it. Now make sure that you stand out on there too. Right. Right. You have to be visual. People need to, we live in a time and an age where people want to see you much more than your face on a business card or a website. They want to see you. They want to hear you. And that's a big part of selling. Yeah, it absolutely is. Well, I have appreciated your time immensely. And I know I've just like, everything you've given us has been, you know, incredibly valuable. And I'm sure people are gonna have to listen to this more than once to kind of make sure they take their notes and take their takeaways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I appreciate it immensely. And I'd love for you to kind of, you know, plug yourself and get what you're doing out there. So if people want to find you, they can find you. I, I would encourage people that are looking to, who have resonated with what I just shared. And again, I just, it was very tip of the iceberg of the tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, to go to my site, drivesalesmastery.com. I just released a course. There's nothing else like it out there. I know what's out there and some of it I wouldn't pay for it. Um, and the rest of it is just rehashed. My, my content is not only my own personal experiences of my successes in sales, uh, but I incorporate the psychology, the body language, the stuff that most people aren't going to be taught in their corporate training classes or wherever they, they go to. Plus, I didn't want to have a course that completely relied on my wisdom. I added 18 other 
gurus, global gurus in sales and marketing, communication, they've added their own uh, content to the course. So it's like a, a mega masterclass so that a person who's walking in as a novice can exit as a ninja, <laughs> right? <laughs> they come in as a mascot, you're, you're leaving as a master. Um, and I think that for those that are looking to really level up, uh, and ultimately, when you get better in sales, you make more money and you have a better quality of life. That's that's what it boils down to. Right? You help others and you help yourself. If that's what's important to people, then I would say to go to the course, thrivesalesmastery.com. Give it a shot for four or five months. You'll, if, you get, if, if you learn one or two things from it, it would have been worth it for those four or five, six months or a year. It's not very expensive at all. Well, yeah. And you're talking one thing that could could help you in a big percent. Absolutely. So everything, you know, the tip of the iceberg could be this podcast got you just enough information to get into sales. And now you understand the very, very, very core concept of it. And now you go over to thrive sales mastery and you Mm -hmm. learn how to actually apply all these things. Correct. Absolutely. Right. You nailed it. Yeah. You nailed it, my friend. Well, I appreciate your time because I know it's uh, it's very hard to come by and it's uh, very appreciated. Colton, I appreciate you having me on your show. Yes, thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Remember to like and review the show. Also, share it with friends and strangers. We've cooled down a little bit since our big featured spots on Podbean, and I'd like to see this show go through another huge explosion in popularity. I'm going through the long and arduous process of transcribing all the episodes as well as putting captioned videos up on YouTube, so bear with me as that takes a lot of time and effort. If you want to support the show, we have a Patreon for donations where you get some cool extra content. Also, you can just reach out to me at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. I am the only person with access to that email, so I guarantee you're talking directly to me. Let me know if you have any questions, guest recommendations, or if you just want to chat. Also, I am looking forward to seeing some art and maybe some music. If people want to submit that, maybe we'll change the official stuff for the show. All right, before we get out of here for the day, the rankings have shifted a little bit. Number one, United States. Number two, Canada. Number three, the UK. Number four, Germany. And number five, Brazil. I've had a lot of fun seeing the competition among listeners where I can tell that listeners in one country start sharing a bit more to see their numbers change at the end of these. It's funny and it's really enjoyable to see that it has spun into an actual competition internationally. But I think that's all I have for this week. So I hope everyone is staying safe and staying happy and I'll see you in the next one. Bye bye